from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. After a long wait, EPA releases RFS blending requirements, and the announcement came with financial relief for some. USDA's latest report had little change to supply. That's a pretty big jump. Uh, the question is how much of that will be available on the quality milling wheat market. But what about demand? As United Airlines jets out on sustainable aviation fuel, it could mean big business for farmers. It's not like biodiesel where you add 10% uh, biodiesel into your regular diesel and it gets pumped into your car. This is 100% fuel. And in John's world? A Christmas 21 playlist. Now for the news. After a long wait, EPA revealing blending requirements under the RFS. That happened this week. And EPA says retroactively lowered the total renewable fuel volumes to 17.13 billion gallons. That includes 12.5 billion for corn-based ethanol. The previously finalized rule was just over 20 billion gallons. And for this year, the agency set total volumes at just over 18.5 billion gallons with more than 13 billion for ethanol. But next year, the volume increases to 20.77 billion gallons and ethanol returns to the statutory 15 billion gallons. Now, in conjunction with the new levels being released, USDA is promising $700 million in grants to biofuels producers who collectively lost about $4.4 billion due to the pandemic. Ethanol producers were especially hard hit. For example, ethanol production in April 2020 was just 55% of what it was in April 2019. USDA says it's also making another $100 million available in grants to expand availability of higher blends of biofuels, gas, and diesel. But American Soybean Association questions where the volume targets will be for next year. Well, and what about those small refinery exemptions? EPA is also announcing a proposed decision to reject all 65 of them that are currently pending. The agency saying the small oil refineries that filed them had failed to show the exemptions were justified under the Clean Air Act. But it said this was not yet a final decision and it's seeking comments for 30 days. Reuters reports the EPA is also considering making electric vehicle power generation eligible for renewable fuel credits when it unveils the 2023 biofuel blending mandates next year. Well, the EPA this week also formally publishing its proposed rule to revert the waters of the U.S. definition, mostly to pre-2015 rules. The agency publishing the notice in the Federal Register. The proposal would set the WOTUS definition back to the pre-2015 version as it seeks to develop a new definition. EPA is expected to announce a series of 10 regional meetings to gather more input from the public and on what the new definition should actually be. It expects to hold those meetings early next year. Well, USDA releasing its latest WASDE and crop production numbers on Thursday, and those reports really had little change. With harvest over, the focus now turning to those ending stocks. USDA making no change in the corn and soybean balance sheet for this year. Trade had expected a smaller corn number and a little higher soybean number, but the agency only made a slight increase to the wheat stocks on reduced exports. Now that this report is out of the way at this time, the market's focus is probably going to go right back to South American weather. That is going to be the key. If La Nina kicks in and starts to lower that crop, it's going to have to make some more demand adjustments down the line in the January report. 
McCormick says right now, U.S. wheat is not competitively priced in the world, and with a bigger supply in the world, it will make it tough for wheat to rally unless there's a weather problem. We'll have much more on the reports and the markets coming up in our roundtable discussions. Well, input price pain is really driving down outlooks right now. That was revealed in the latest CME Purdue Ag Economy Barometer that hit the lowest level of the year. The barometer now setting at 116. That's down five points from October and 30 percentage points lower than November of last year. Once again, weakness in the barometer was really attributed to weaker farmer sentiment on current conditions along with expectations of the future. Once again this month, we asked producers what their biggest concern is for their farming operation in the upcoming year. 47% of the producers in this month's survey said that they are most concerned about the rapid rise in farm input cost. 55% of producers in this month's survey said they expect farm input costs to rise by 12% or more in the upcoming year. Well, as farmers remain worried about climbing input prices, a group of farmers is asking the Department of Justice to investigate fertilizer prices. The Family Farm Action Alliance, which has more than 6,000 members, sending a letter to the Assistant Attorney General of the Antitrust Division, the group alleging that fertilizer prices are not based on supply and demand, but the price farmers are paid for their crops. The group claims with corn prices paid to farmers are as high as they are right now, that fertilizer corporations respond by increasing their prices. A spokesperson for one fertilizer company, Mosaic, talking to Reuters, denying the claims. He said the current market spike is due to, quote, curtailed exports from certain nations, including China, and strong global demand among many factors, end quote. Well, despite those higher fertilizer prices, thanks to a nice window with weather, fall fertilizer applications have been full force lately. But with a blast of winter weather heading to many states, we will have a check of your weather next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Wiffles Hybrids, a wholly owned subsidiary of nobody. I'm meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht. I want to start off taking a look at the drought monitor now. This was released on Thursday. We did get some much needed rainfall and snowfall through portions of the nation, which has helped uh, the drought monitor. And also uh, North Carolina, there was uh, an entire state burn ban uh, for the, uh, the past couple of days that uh, has been lifted for portions of North Carolina as there was some much needed rain that came through. Still pretty dry back out here to the west, even into the mountains where we need that snowpack. Uh, still remaining dry through our Saturday and Sunday with the ridge of high pressure uh, building in next week. And we're going to just go ahead and start there. This is a jet stream coming up on Sunday. A pretty zonal. We had a strong cold front, a low pressure system roll through the nation Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Here's the remnants of it right here. This will continue to move off to the north and the east. The reason I point that out, because uh, a lot of times when you're looking at the jet stream and weather systems, you go low, high, low, high. So you got that kind of back and forth. Well, this high, this ridge of high pressure that you can see with the jet stream, all these lines moving to the north, rather than the south is going to build in not only the warmth and the heat through most of next week. This is a jet stream on Tuesday. It's also going to suppress any rainfall or snow chances for nearly two thirds of the nation. It does not mean it won't be uh, completely warm for everyone. You see that colder air dipping back down. This is the trough that is going to amplify this ridge 
Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, the way these two things are going to work. Now, eventually we'll start to get that energy working from the west to the east uh, with that next jet stream. But look at this. This is the middle part of next week that we're still seeing above average high temperatures uh, into the Midwest of Michigan, upstate New York, but also back out here towards Texas and Oklahoma. Cold front's going to swipe through. It's going to be what's called a shallow trough, so it's not going to dig down that far, not nearly as far as what we had with our last cold front that came through Thursday, Friday and Saturday. That one, that cold dry air was able to reach back down here to the Gulf of Mexico. This next one is going to be pretty shallow, so most of that energy is going to be going to the northeast rather than to the southeast. That's going to keep those warmer temperatures around you know, with the colder, drier air being locked up back into parts of uh, Hudson Bay and into Canada. So this is the jet stream on Friday. You see a couple pieces of energy trying to come through, but in terms of significant cold air, uh, it's just not looking like it's going to be in the cards next week. We're going to get a fluctuation between the warm and the cold, but on average, well above average for a good portion of the nation with this setup. Right, here's a look at the forecast coming up on Monday. It's all that we just talked about. You had that uh, low pressure system move off into the Atlantic. High pressure building in as early as Monday, so December 13th. Warm conditions, mild back here as another warm front tries to push through. Now, kind of uh, like we talked about, shallow with the cold air trying to dig down from north to the south. But for the most part, this is going to be a warm week ahead for the United States. Thanks, Matt. Well, there was little change in USDA's report this week, but analysts say there are a couple things that you should watch. Matt Bennett and Arlen Suderman tell you exactly what those are next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Arlen Suderman and Matt Bennett joining us now. Arlen, USDA report, as we mentioned in news, not a lot of changes, but what were the big things in the report that you're really watching on the world side? Yeah, and that's where most of the changes were. USDA bumping the size of Australia's wheat crop up about two and a half million metric tons. That's a pretty big jump. Uh, the question is how much of that will be available on the quality milling wheat market uh, because of the persistent rains that they've had there. So that's yet to be assessed on the quality side. We also saw USDA bump Russia's crop up another one million metric tons after they went too far and dropping it earlier this year. And on corn side, we saw Ukraine's crop go two million metric tons larger that put another 1 million metric tons on the world market. Uh, but I think the market quickly looked past that and said, okay, what matters more is 2022 and fertilizer prices and how that may impact production for the coming year. Yeah, before we move on from wheat, I mean, Matt, when you look at these higher wheat prices, I mean, wheat has been on, on a phenomenal run. It seems like USDA does think that is really going to dampen the outlook for wheat exports. Do you think that then pressures wheat prices into 2022? Well, certainly wheat prices have been awfully strong. Uh, you know, you look at, for instance, uh, July wheat uh, currently at 775, you know, for Chicago market, and it's still historically a very strong price. And so, you know, where would the pressure be? You know, I, I guess from my vantage point, when you're looking at stocks use ratios significantly below what we've seen in the past, remember we've typically ran like a 50% stocks to use, you know, now we're under 30%. Uh, I guess my, my thought process is that uh, there could be some downward pressure because of uh, looking at how strong prices are historically, but at the same time, you know, I don't know that I would want to be selling too much wheat. Yeah, and Arlen, I mean, when we saw corn prices climb, we did see more than possibly use wheat as a feed option. Do you think this switches the feed buyers back to more corn? 
Yeah, we really made that switch earlier this summer, and uh, the market's still trying to keep wheat out of the feed bunk. And in fact, when we had the big price break this week, a lot of it was technical in nature. Once we broke a head and shoulders base shoulder formation, uh, the price was dropping, but it didn't take long. And the domestic millers were very aggressive. Our cash market was on fire as domestic millers are trying to get some support or some supply coverage in there. The big question is, is can we get exports? now doesn't take much to prices out of the export market so the, we need to find some balance where domestic mills get their supplies but yet we still do some exports uh, in here i liked usda's reduction in export numbers this morning i thought it was justified based on the pace we've had probably more cuts are in the way though if we can't pick that export pace up well matt also this week a slew of announcements from epa when it comes to the renewable fuel standard you know, there was a lot of anticipation of exactly what those announcements would be. Was that already priced into the market or did we see some reaction from EPA's volume obligations that they released for last year, this year, and then also looking at 2022? Yeah, I, you didn't really see a huge reaction. I mean, obviously, we all saw the reductions for uh, uh, 20 and 21 and then 22 at around the 15 billion bushel mark. You know, I, I guess, uh, or, or, you know, bottom line for me is that uh, uh, whenever I look at the way the corn market reacted, it's it was either priced in or uh, people just weren't all that surprised. And quite frankly, I don't think there were any huge surprises. And so, you know, ethanol grind's been awfully good here this year. But I think uh, for most of us, we have to understand that, uh, you know, the administration hasn't been overly rosy about, uh, uh, you know, how they're going to, I guess, support uh, biofuels moving forward. Yeah, and Arlen, typically higher oil prices is good news for ethanol demand, good news for corn. Has that been the case? I mean, we've seen oil kind of on a roller coaster ride here lately. Is that fueling or hindering the corn market to end this year? Yeah, we've had some good margins. We've had some good ethanol production numbers. We'd like to have them higher. Uh, certainly, we need to get export numbers up. One of our problems is fuel consumption. We got fuel consumption up toward the levels that we saw in 2019. We're having trouble getting it higher than that. And we're also seeing some positivity based on Biden signals from the Biden administration about their support for the new sustainable aviation fuels, as well as the new renewable diesels. And so I think longer term, that's where our, our options optimism is going to come from. Not a lot of revisions from USDA this week when it comes to South America, but our changes coming. We'll ask Matt and Arlen later on U.S. Farm Report. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Stein Seed. Through extensive research, decades of expertise, and stronger industry relationships, it's easy to see why Stein has yield, plus so much more. Discover the Yield Plus Advantage at SteinSeed.com. Well, with a six and seven year old at our house, Christmas music is on full blast right now. And if you need a little help getting into the Christmas spirit, John Phipps has a playlist that may do just that. This year, I thought I'd share some of my favorite Christmas music. Now, all these songs can be downloaded as tracks pretty cheaply from places like iTunes or Spotify, but the whole list will be duplicated on our web page. Just Google Phipps AgWeb Playlist. All these are songs, hymns, and carols I have stumbled across over the years, but there may be some you haven't heard. Let's go. 
Once in Royal David's City, an English hymn sung by the BBC Welsh Choir. Now keep your hand near the volume control. It starts very quietly with treble voices in a huge cathedral before winding up with a full choir and 200 horsepower organ. Don't Need a Reindeer by the Moody Blues. Okay, I'm really dating myself, but this admittedly silly song has been stuck in my head for years. Comfort Ye from Handel's Messiah by Juan Diego Flores. Not quite the power of Pavarotti or the musicality of Domingo, but Flores is easily the smoothest coloratura tenor I have heard. He effortlessly manages this fiendishly difficult aria. Babe of Bethlehem, the Rose Ensemble. Found on a marvelous album of early American music, this a cappella group features an amazing bass solo on this song. The Holly and the Ivy, Mannheim Steamroller, a peaceful rendition of an old favorite that made it new to me. Jesus, the Light of the World, the Boston Camerata, an old Christmas hymn carol I had never heard for year, until years ago, and now is one of my favorites. Beautiful Star of Bethlehem, Chanticleer, another nearly forgotten gospel carol performed by one of the premier male ensembles of our time. Christmas for Cowboys by John Denver. I'm no horse fan, so this is for all you buckaroos out there. Born on a New Day, King Singers. Sung by maybe the best men's ensemble for decades, this original song has delicate harmony and is gentle on the ear and spirit. An Angel Share, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. This is impossible to describe, but imagine a cross of the Hallelujah Chorus with Away in the Manger. White is in the Winter Night by Enya, an original carol both refreshing and infectious, even if I were not a huge fan of her work. O Come All Ye Faithful, Ed Van Fleet. Now this song, you have to be ordered or downloaded directly from his website. Just Google Ed Van Fleet Christmas. The whole album is worth the 10 bucks, but his arrangement of O Come turns it from an invitation to a command, a truly original version. These were all happy discoveries to me over the years, and I hope you can enjoy them this Christmas season. Thanks, John. We'll make sure to get that list posted to AgWeb as well. All right, we need to take a quick break. And the machine repeat, he has tractor tails this week. That's next. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. Something a little different for you this week as we head off to North Central Illinois to check out a 1946 John Deere B.O. Crawler. This is a 1946 B.O. Linderman. I bought it about two months ago. It's in real good shape, it seems to run pretty good. Tracks need a little bit of work. We're going to uh, totally restore it here. We test them and make sure everything's working right. This was one of 30 chassis sent to Yakima, Washington, where they put the track conversion kit on, on it from Deer. Did a lot of work in Yakima first when it was sold in 1947. I always wanted a B.O. crawler. They're a little hard to come by, so I decided, you know, if I could get one, and Carl had one, and we worked out a deal, and I bought the tractor. Yeah, this tractor spent most of its life in, life in uh, Yakima, Washington, in Oregon. And it may have, you know, they used him in some of the tree, you know, in the 
uh, forest dragging out trees and things of that nature. Uh, they pulled hops machines with them a lot in Yakima. Uh, they needed a little more traction with these tractors had it, and they're about 20 horse, where the wheel tractor and the heels and stuff wasn't quite as good, and the BO uh, worked out pretty good. And like I said, we used it, testing it, it pulls two bottoms pretty well, two 14s. We use them somewhat like plow days and stuff, tractor shows, we do use them, yes. Yeah, we'll totally disassemble it and go through it and make sure everything's 100%, and then we'll put it back together like some of the other ones here were disassembled and put back together. Everything has to be pretty you know, up to snuff or we won't uh, paint it until it's right. Well, as airline companies work to reduce their dependence on fossil fuels, it could mean big business for farmers. We'll tell you exactly why next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, airline companies here in the U.S. could hold the ticket to actually higher crop demand. It's airlines like Southwest and United that are working to reduce their dependence on fossil fuels. And that's fueling demand, as we show you in this week's Farm Journal Report. As airlines jet out to reduce their carbon footprint, Renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel is taking flight. Just last week, United Airlines successfully completed the first flight running on sustainable aviation fuel, a 100% renewable fuel made from products such as cooking oil, vegetable oil, or even soybean oil. This is an important and historic moment for global aviation. There's simply no battery technology, even theoretical technology, that has enough energy density that you could put enough batteries on the airplane to get an airplane this big with this many people flying this far. The sustainable aviation fuel used by United last week was made from sugar and corn. And analysts say the fuel industry could mean big business for farmers in the years ahead. We talk about demand drivers in agriculture. There's two of them right now, which is China and corn, and then this big story in renewable diesel. I think both of those will keep agricultural prices high for the next two to three years. As soybean growers work to cash in on a new opportunity around low carbon fuel standards, it's one fueled by a movement to reduce the airline industry's reliance on fossil fuels. The light might be dimming in ethanol, but there's a brighter light down the down the line as far as renewable fuel is concerned. The race to reduce airplane emissions comes with a lofty goal. As the Biden administration says it's working to eliminate the airline industry's fossil fuel usage by 2050. Today we are announcing another two, two uh, funding opportunities for clean energy technology. One of them is to create next generation biofuels for airplanes and ships, which are very hard to electrify. And the second is to announce clean energy technology funding opportunity to reduce methane emissions from the coal, oil, and gas. The optimism about sustainable aviation fuel was something Agriculture Secretary Tom Bilsack highlighted during the Farm Journal Farm Country update in late August. Are there other ways in which biofuels can be used? And I think you're going to see in the very near future a commitment by this administration uh, as it relates to aviation uh, and marine fuel that opens up a whole new vista 
uh, for the biofuel industry. So just how big of a demand boon could sustainable aviation fuel be for products like soybeans? Well, both Bossy and Meyer think it's so big it could domesticate the U.S. soybean demand market. And this is a social issue, not a mandated issue, and that's the difference as we look at it. Right now, it's concentrated to the airline in the West Coast, but I think going forward, if we can replace just 5% of jet fuel, we just don't have enough soybean oil available. From Marathon to Holly Frontier, you name it, big oil companies are investing in plants to produce renewable fuels. The difference between renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel is that it's not an additive. It's not like biodiesel where you add 10% uh, biodiesel into your regular diesel and it gets pumped into your car. This is 100% fuel. Meyer says the energy transition away from fossil fuels will require a ramp up in renewable fuel production. S&P Global Platt says currently half a dozen plants are online with more than 20 still in the development stage. The fact of the matter is that in our opinion, by the year 2025, we will need 40 billion pounds of feedstock to keep the renewable energy refineries running. Meyer says currently the U.S. is only producing 12 to 14 billion pounds of the necessary products each year, which already includes things like cooking oil. And that's a far cry from the 40 billion pounds needed. And Meyer thinks the gap can be filled with the help of soybean oil. In the U.S. at the moment, crushed plants are kind of running at full capacity. And at that point, we still need, if our math is right, we're going to need 25 billion pounds, and that's all of the soil oil we produce on a yearly basis. According to Ag Resource Company's data, Bossy says the U.S. will need to double its U.S. soybean oil supplies in order to meet that boon in demand. We're going from 25 billion pounds up close to 50 billion by 2024. That's going to take an increase of the U.S. crush industry somewhere in the vicinity of 60% to get there. That's why you see all these oil companies combining with local crushers or let's say U.S. crushers here today. From soy oil produced as a byproduct of soybean meal to soybeans soon crushed for the oil. Myers says someday soon it will be the biggest driver of the crop's future. But with renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel, it's a totally different animal because you're going to have to power your heavy machinery. You're going to have to power your interstate truckers, and you're certainly going to have to power your airlines. So in my opinion, and in our opinion, this has more sustainability than the ethanol business. Meyer thinks the new soybean demand won't be realized until 2023. That's as Bossy estimates the U.S. will need 30 million more soybean acres by 2024 to fuel the new business. We need more soybean acreage each year, somewhere in the vicinity of 3 to 7 million, depending upon the year and when these refineries are coming online. From policy changes to a social movement across the world, the changes could fuel soybean acreage and demand as soybeans ethanol moment could just be on the horizon. Now, just a couple weeks ago, we actually had USDA Chief Economist Seth Meyer on our roundtable panel, and we asked him why USDA's longer-term outlook for soybeans didn't really incorporate all of that potential soybean demand. And he said with crushed plants still coming online, it's still too early to fully incorporate all of those numbers into their long-term outlook. Well, speaking of demand, we'll talk much more about short-term and long-term with Arlen Suderman and Matt Bennett next. Welcome back. Matt Bennett, Arlen Suderman joining us now. All right, our Farm Journal report was all about sustainable aviation fuel. Could this be soybeans ethanol moment coming up in the next couple of years? 
Matt, as we look at the acreage game in 2022, it doesn't sound like that demand is really going to come into fruition until 2023. So if you're a farmer looking at what you should plant next year, do you think sustainable aviation fuel and renewable diesel should play into that decision? Uh, that's a wonderful question. Uh, and, and in all honesty, I think that it, if it plays into your decision, it should be on a, a, maybe a little bit of a smaller level than, for instance, did you get your fertilizer booked for corn, uh, you know, at prepay levels or did you book it uh, or have you not booked it yet? You know, because uh, the difference in uh, net profit uh, per acre, you know, you're talking about $150 swing from, you know, your, some of your prepay prices because DAP's gone up, you know, around $300, uh, potash up 250 bucks, you know, and then uh, of course anhydrous is essentially doubled. So uh, that would probably be where I would hang my hat more whenever I'm trying to make a decision on whether I want to plant corn versus soybeans uh, than sustainable fuel. I think that discussion essentially is uh, definitely going to be in the 2023 and beyond timeframe. Arlen, you know, there's some analysts right now that are saying based on this renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel, we will need 30 million more acres of soybeans by 2024. Big numbers that are being thrown out. Do you think really there's that much potential when it comes to this new demand? Potentially, yeah, I really do. We're really bullish on that, but it's going to take time because in order to get uh, that demand that fast, we'd have to expand our crush capacity by 70% over the next three years. That's not going to happen. We are seeing some of the early in renewable fuel processing plants open up now, but beyond this initial phase, those behind that have really hit the pause button. They want to see how it goes for these initial plants first, how the infrastructure develops, etc. And so it's going to be a little bit slower. Are we still bullish long term? You bet we are. But we have to have some time in between to allow this thing to develop. It's not going to be as quick as what the ethanol boom was. Well, as the acreage competition heats up between the U.S. and South America, and we look at South American production, Matt, I mean, not a lot of changes from USDA in this week's report. Was that expected? And do you think there are some changes that could be on the horizon considering some of the weather challenges that they have been seeing in some of those key production areas lately? Uh, you know, you hear about dryness, of course, in southern Brazil and Argentina. You know, with Argentina's corn crop and soybean crop not being adjusted, many times when La Nina is still in place for the bulk of their crop, they 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 are not able to raise what you would call a normal size crop. And so I do think there could be some adjustments there. As far as Brazil's concerned, it's preliminary to adjust your corn crop, uh, considering most of that corn is grown with a safrina crop, which has yet to be planted. But, you know, as far as soybeans are concerned, I think enough of Brazil is in really good shape that uh, some of the areas in the farther south areas uh, may not be able to drag you down a whole lot. So I'm still expecting a pretty large crop as far as soybeans are concerned out of Brazil. I think the big question mark, of course, is Argentina, which is very important considering how much soybean meal they put out on the world market. Arlen, do you agree with that? Do you think USDA was right in really not making a lot of changes when it comes to the South American crop projections? Yeah, you look at this week's crop ratings, 85% of Argentina's corn is rated good to excellent, 75% of its soybeans. The crop is looking good now. The concern, though, is going forward, and we're drying out. We're just starting to put stress on. So I think USDA was right not to make an adjustment yeah, yet now, but I think that is probably coming in January, February, when we actually have evidence of it. Last year, we kind of jumped the gun and expecting short crops, and they kept getting timely rains, and that's a possibility and I think that's why USDA is being patient. Matt, when we talk to analysts a lot, you know, really bullish cattle 
into the new year. But lately, we've seen some choppy trade, seen some pressure. Do you think that's short-term, or is there more at play right now with these cattle prices that's really pressuring us heading into 2022? Yeah, I, I just think it's pretty tough to uh, expect cattle to rally whenever your uh, feed stocks are obviously uh, you know, very pricey. But at the same time, I think with beef demand, it's uh, strong as can be. And so I I, uh, I look uh, on out to April, and I, I mean, I could see uh, April cattle get into that 145, 150 range. I think, uh, you know, I look back to a year like 2015 when we saw fats in the 150s. You know, I don't know that uh, we're going to get there right away, but I certainly feel like we have what we need to get there. Demand is awfully strong, and uh, numbers are off of where we were at a year ago. And I certainly think that the consumer is going to continue to choose beef and choose it strongly, especially with money in their pocket. So I'm, I'm certainly not uh, bearish cattle at this point. Well, Arlen and Matt, thank you so much for joining us on a busy report week. We appreciate it. Stay with us. We need to take a quick break and then we'll travel the countryside with Andrew McRae. Find farm equipment on Machinery Pete's December 21st online auction. No reserve, no buyer fees. Start bidding now at auctions.machinerypete.com. Well, the Mississippi River is full of history, and for one captain who has been on the river for more than four decades, he has so many stories about how much has changed. We find out some of those stories this week as we travel the countryside with Andrew McRae. Steve Terry grew up along the Mississippi River in Hannibal, Missouri, but it wasn't until the end of his high school years that the river truly became a part of his life. He took a job as a deckhand, found that he loved the river, and worked his way up to become the captain and owner of the Mark Twain Riverboat here in Hannibal. Well, I've been a captain for 42 years. In 1979, after my apprenticeship, I got my license. I was 19, and I was the youngest pilot on the Mississippi, or one of them anyway, at that time. And then uh, my wife and I bought the company in 97. From spring to fall, you can find Steve here in the pilot house. Each day, he pulls from the dock onto a river that has become a second home of sorts. There are several places along the Mississippi River where you can take an excursion on a riverboat. Steve says there's one reason at the top of many visitors' list why they come here. A lot of it is Mark Twain. They want to see what inspired him to write the stories Tom Sawyer, Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And you know, a lot of that is rooted in the fact that he was a child here. Not only did Mark Twain base many of his books on life events here in Hannibal, but he, like Steve, was a riverboat captain. Twain was born Samuel Clemens in 1835 and usually piloted the river from St. Louis to New Orleans in the days just before the Civil War. Back in the old days, they didn't have electronic depth sounders, and if they wanted to know how deep the water was, they would send a man out in front, either on the bow of the boat or out on the skiff ahead of the boat, and they would drop a weighted line or a pole in the water. Those lines and poles were marked in six-foot increments, known as a fathom. And that depth in fathoms is what Samuel Clemens needed to know as a riverboat pilot. So six feet was one fathom. It was also considered a mark. Okay, so if you had six feet going, they, they had one mark. If you had two marks go in the water, 12 feet or two fathoms, then that was considered safe water for most steamboats in that day. So Clemens took the pen name Mark Twain, which was a safe depth for riverboats to operate. The steamboat traffic Clemens would have seen has mostly been replaced by barges these days near Hannibal. If we go with a standard rake barge, that's uh, 195 feet long, 35 feet wide, 12 feet deep, and they generally load them to 52,000 bushel, or 1,500 ton. If you were to look at a chart at the Mississippi, 
Steve never seems to tire of sharing stories from the pilot house with folks from all over the nation and world as he works here with his wife, daughter, and sister. I like what I do and, you know, I also like the fact that in the winter months, kind of the time's mine is like being semi-retired. You still got to do office stuff, but, you know, uh, I had the flexibility to go and do things in the winter months. Much has changed about this river since the days of Mark Twain. However, riverboats are still an important way that people love to enjoy this place. Traveling the countryside in Hannibal, Missouri, I'm Andrew McCray. And you can hear more of Andrew's travels at AmericanCountryside.com. Well, if you're planning a trip right now, it may cost you a little bit more. And inflation is the topic of customer support next. Inflation and asset values. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Stein Seed. For more than 50 years, Stein has delivered the most advanced corn and soybean genetics available. Through relationships, data, and expertise, Stein has yield plus so much more. Discover yield plus at steinseed.com. On the heels of the Federal Reserve saying that inflation is no longer transitory, John Phipps answers a viewer's question about inflation this week in customer support. From Don Worth in Tangent, Oregon. So does the increase in the value of capital assets keep up with inflation in the end? And my answer is, hmm, sort of. This is comparing apples with screwdrivers, essentially. What we generally call inflation is consumption expenditures, food, clothing, rent, car expenses, medical care, etc. And here is the fabled basket of goods and services monitored to calculate that most popular headline number, the consumer price index. Notice what is not in the basket, stuff like stocks, bonds, real estate, etc. Capital assets like machinery are investments, not consumables. They have been zooming upwards due to several factors like chip shortages, labor disputes, farm, uh, supply problems, farmer income, and above all, profit opportunity. Assets cost more because sellers can get more. There's that much demand. Inflation comes in only when we sell capital assets, turning them into dollars. Would those dollars received by the same goods and services as earlier? Here are the separate price indices for the last five years as of October 1st. The CPI rose 14 percent since 2016. In case you're wondering how the recent headlines of 6 percent in October fits in, that's an annualized rate for that month, what 12 Octobers in a row would add up to. The farm machinery PPI is like a CPI for equipment. It rose 22% over the same period. Then there's Machine Repeats used equipment price chart, which calculates a stunning 43% rise in used equipment over the same period. Remember, the CPI measures the prices of consumables, which disappear after being purchased, like a box of Twinkies, for example. Assets are not consumed, but have value after the purchase, often higher, sometimes lower. The CPI rose fairly steadily in the last five years, but the machinery PPI had two big jumps in 2018 and now with relatively flat prices in between. Obviously, we should have all bought stuff in 2019. The other big capital asset for farms is, of course, land. There are several indices compiled by various university and real estate sources. I picked Illinois land values from FarmDoc. Those prices have risen 8% over the last five years, but the recent boom since October the 1st will add some to that. 
So did asset values keep up with inflation for farmers? Yes, but it really doesn't mean much unless you sell them. And don't forget, if you have a question for John, you can email him at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. Well, tis the season, but is there an actual Christmas tree shortage? From the Farm is next. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF, helping you do the biggest job on earth. Well, Christmas tree farmers are extremely busy this time of year. And in 2021, is there a Christmas tree shortage like many saw last year? Well, it depends on who you ask. In California in the Northwest, drought and wildfires took its toll on the tree crop. Pests are also a problem that plague producers each year. But in areas of the East, it's high demand from shoppers returning to holiday traditions. Once you plant them out, depending on the type of tree, it may take um, six to 10 years before you have a saleable tree. According to USDA, farmers cut and sold 3.44 million trees in 2020. That's down 27% from 2015. And because of that, and because of labor shortages and other things, the price of the trees has gone up at least 100% in the last 10 years. Some tree growers who also buy trees from other states to offer different varieties say once a shipment comes in this year due to the high demand, they are often sold out in days. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.